Have you ever wondered if we are alone in the universe? Is there any scientific evidence showing that an intelligent designer created the heavens and the earth? Welcome to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk AM 570 and 910. You may have heard about the debate over intelligent design and Darwinism. Find out what the evidence says about the origin of life and mankind, and just what the experts are saying. Darwin or Design, brought to you by the C.S. Lewis Society. Now your host, the author of Doubts About Darwin and Darwin Strikes Back, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College in Trinity, Florida, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to Darwin or Design, a program that tackles each week the big questions of whether there is or is not a designer of the universe, whether there's scientific evidence that points uh, in the direction of a designer, or is the evidence um, you know, all clustered and pointing in a different direction. Uh, the, the program comes to you courtesy of two wonderful organizations. We want to start out by saying thank you to them. The C.S. Lewis Society, based up at the college campus where I teach, Trinity College of Florida. The, the C.S. Lewis Society is reachable online at apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. Or you can call the college number, which is 727-376-6911. The C.S. Lewis Society has for 20 years been uh, holding debates, uh, conferences, seminars, lectures at universities in the United States and even overseas, especially in England and in Europe, uh, continental Europe, where we've been doing a lot of exciting things in recent years. And it's been my privilege to head up that uh, organization. And um, I also want to thank the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute, the really premier eye hospital, not only of Florida, but perhaps of the United States and the world. Dr. James P. Gills, a pioneer in cataract surgery, of course, has done more cataract surgeries than anybody on the planet. Bill Carl, I think that's quite a some, quite an achievement. And, of course, uh, we have the, the very a great opportunity and privilege of uh, bringing to you this information, courtesy the wonderful folks at St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute. Get a hold of them at their website, stlukeseye.com. That's stlukeseye.com. Or you can reach them through their their main number in uh, Tarpon Springs, 727-938-2020. That's 727-938-2020. Excellence with love. Well, Bill Carl, we have uh, had quite a few amazing interviews through the years. Uh, these two years we've been up and running, but I think today is really special among them uh, because the professor we have online is getting ready to write a book, which comes from a uni- unique point of view, a slant that probably has not been heard um, as much as it should have been heard in the academic world. We have with us Dr. Brad Monton uh, at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and Dr. Monton is preparing or is in the final stages of tweaking a book, which is, I believe, slated to come out this summer. Is that right, uh, Dr. Monton? That's correct. Okay. And uh, Dr. Monton has been, uh, of late, been engaging in uh, discussions, lectures, debates on the topic of whether, um, you know, belief or at least giving credence and some uh, listening ear to the design theory requires that you be a theist, that you believe in God, or whether even an agnostic or an atheist can see some value, some potential plausibility uh, to these arguments. And so welcome to Darwin or Design. And if you could tell us a little bit about your kind of um, background, where you did your PhD, I think it is at Princeton, a, a place dear to my heart since I did my undergrad work there. Sure. Um, I was an undergraduate uh, major at Rice University in Houston, and there I was a double major in physics and philosophy. I started out in physics, 
and then decided that I was more interested in the foundational issues that philosophy addressed. So I ended up specializing. I ended up getting an interest in philosophy of physics and then going on to grad school to um, specialize in that area. Wow. And Did you go yeah. directly from Rice to Princeton then? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, Princeton, I know, has been touted. I mean, I remember when I was an undergraduate there, they were proud to have their annual ranking as number one in the world in physics and number one in the world in philosophy. So it sounds like you may have gotten the best of both worlds to, yeah. some, to some extent. I think so. I had an amazing philosophy education when I was there. That's great. Well, I, do, I want to you know, maybe go into some of my own pet questions about philosophy of science in a little bit. But sure. uh, more to the point of today's program, you are preparing a book, and I don't remember the name of the publisher, but it's due out somewhere around June or July, if I recall. Tell us about the book, uh, something of its title and contents, and how it came about. Sure. Um, the book is coming out with Broadview Press, and I like them because they are an academic publisher that also markets to non-academics, and I'm trying to... You know, hit that middle ground where I hope that both academics and non-academics will be interested in my book. Okay. It's called Seeking God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. And um, I like that title because ultimately I think, while I, while I am an atheist, I'm not incredibly dogmatic about it. I think there's you know, some chance that God exists, and I'm interested in investigating arguments for the existence of God. Um, you know, I recognize I might be wrong in thinking that there is no God. And I find the intelligent design arguments, I find the science-based design arguments, the most compelling of all the arguments um, there are for the existence of God. And so that's why I'm interested in exploring the issue. I want to see what merits these arguments have. And I feel like, and then the, the part where I'm defending intelligent design, I'm giving a partial defense in, in that I feel like other atheists have given completely unfair criticisms of intelligent design. And I'm trying to um, basically set the record straight and Ultimately, I want to elevate both cause, both sides of the debate. Um, I want to you know, help the intelligent design people to get better arguments than they may currently be doing. And I also want the atheist to focus on the right sorts of arguments that one should give against intelligent design if one is going to argue against it. I mean, just to hear you talk about this project, I mean, this is this shatters in, in a sense. It, 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 it tweaks it tweaks the noses of the of the main categories that people uh, are stereotypically thinking in um, when right. when you address intelligent design. How do your colleagues there at the University of Colorado at Boulder, in either in your department or generally across that university, which is not exactly known as a conservative uh, right wing? I mean, if anything, it's <laughs> known as to be uh, a little bit left of center. Right. How do your how does your campus environment react to you? Do you think do, do, do they write you off? Do they uh, engage with you with you in discussion? Um, so that's a good question. Before I address that, I do have to say one thing about okay. Boulder, which is I know it has a reputation of being an ultra liberal place, and it is it is left of center certainly. But for example, Steve Forbes came to Boulder a few weeks ago mm-hmm. um, and came to campus and gave a lecture to a packed auditorium and got a standing ovation. That's great. So you know. You know, the stereotypes that Bill O'Reilly promulgates about Boulder aren't always completely yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, it's not. It's not necessarily the People's Republic of Boulder, as the uh, think some, <laughs> of the, some of the Denverites. You right. can actually get a really good Chicago-style deep dish pizza in Boulder. I, have I will summer. take. <laughs> I'll take note of that, Bill Carl. Okay, and uh, back to you, Dr. Brad Monton. Yeah. So, th- my philosophy colleagues have been great. They've. Um, I mean, obviously, not all of them are paying attention to my work. We have a department of you know twenty-some people, but mm. the ones who have been paying attention to my work. Um, have uh, liked it. They understand my project. They think it's great that I'm, you know, pushing past the um, sort of 
the, the war between two camps model that has um, come, into, come about with regard to the intelligent design debate. Uh, I've gotten reactions from other people who, which has not been so positive. For example, there's a biology professor, Michael Klimkowski, um, who attended a public lecture I gave on intelligent design and then just attacked, not the content of my lecture, but attacked me personally. Hmm. Wow. Classic ad hominem argument of going against the person, not against the argument, hmm. and accused me of academic misconduct and intellectual dishonesty and lack of scholarship. And it was just, it was really childish. It was pretty, actually embarrassing. My goodness. And I think I've actually seen something of a interaction um, with his comments on your own blog. Is that correct? Right. My blog is, you can just Google Bradley Montan blog or go to bradleymontan.wordpress.com. And there I have a long discussion where I sort of, I was, I was a little bit angry and I went off on what was everything that was wrong with, and not everything, but lots of things that were wrong with Klimkowski's talk that he gave in response to mine. My goodness. Well, we're talking today to Dr. Bradley Montan, who is a professor in the philosophy department at the University of Colorado in Boulder, a very uh, top-ranked university in that uh, great mountain state area. And he is also a graduate PhD, uh, I believe it's 1999, from my, my alma mater, Princeton University, but in the elite department. I mean, Princeton prides itself annually at maintaining number one ranking in philosophy and number one ranking in physics. And so to have uh, Dr. Brad Montan, who got his PhD in philosophy of physics, is a real a privilege for us. Uh, Dr. Montan, uh, you have uh, actually developed this book, uh, Seeking God in Science, and then subtitled uh, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design, more focused on, from what I understand, the physics or the fine-tuning argument side. Is that correct? Um. Ultimately, if you ask me my personal opinion, I think the fine-tuning argument is the strongest science-based design argument. Okay. Um, in the book, I do talk about uh, the origin of life argument. I talk about evolution-based arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that the unfair criticisms have been given of all of those. Um, I think that you know, there are issues that people haven't thought about with regard to all these arguments that I'm trying to bring forth in the book. Um, it's, I think that it's kind of strange that the intelligent design movement as of late, has focused so much on the evolution-based arguments. Hmm. Um, now, Behe's irreducible complexity argument is, you know, certainly worth considering. Um, it's, a, it's a, you know, prima facie good argument. Mm -hmm. um, but there are lots of other science-based design arguments as well. And um, I'm, so I think, I think the focus is a little bit misplaced. And nowadays, I recognize that some intelligent design proponents are moving on to other arguments. They're talking more about the origin of life from non-life and whether one could get a reasonable explanation of that naturalistically. Mm -hmm. We're talking more about the relationship between consciousness and the brain and whether one could get a satisfactory naturalistic explanation of that. So it's good that some of these other arguments are being considered. I think that it's sort of unfortunate that in the recent past, the intelligence design, argument, intelligence design movement has focused so much on the evolution-based arguments because they've sort of boxed themselves into a corner with those arguments a little bit, at least in popular culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I want <clears throat> to ask you real quickly. I mean, this is uh, we're, we're all always looking for popular level. When I say popular level, I mean like uh, that is something that can be understood by a high school junior, senior, college freshman uh, with no problem. Have you uh, had any chance to see the ID uh, science-based uh, DVD documentary called The Privileged Planet? Are you familiar with that? I'm familiar with the book, but I haven't seen the DVD. Okay. I have it on my shelf at home, but I just haven't watched it yet. Oh, okay. So, well, we're near the end of the first segment. Let me just go ahead and wrap it up for uh, this quarter of the program. We're talking to Bradley Monton, Dr. Brad Bradley Monton, at the University of Colorado 
at Boulder, and we're going to be coming right back with some of the heavy-hitting questions I have for uh, for him. Just stay tuned. You're listening to Darwin or Design. I'm Tom Woodward, your host, and we will be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910-WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to a really exciting interaction with a world-renowned, uh, at least in this area of Darwin or Design, world-renowned scholar, uh, someone who's preparing uh, the final tweaks on his book called Seeking God in Science, subtitled An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. Now, uh, when anyone hears about Dr. Bradley Monton taking this position, they probably twist their head a little bit and, and say, you know, what's going on here? I mean, how can anybody from that side of the philosophical spectrum see value in a, in a theory which is just warmed over creationism? So, Dr. Brad uh, Monton, do you get people who ask you, like, how could you possibly take this position and how do you answer them in a, in a nutshell? Right. Um, so there are two problems. One is that it's unfortunate that the intelligent design doctrine has been so closely associated with creationism. Mm-hmm. Um, there are philosophers like Barbara Forrest and Robert Pennock who keep pushing this link. And in fact, they're quite different sorts of arguments. And the intelligent design arguments have a lot more, um, I think, you know, intellectual force than the old style, at least uh, young earth creationist arguments. So um, I think that you know, part of the negative reaction that some people have about intelligent design is just that there's been this um, unfair association with creationism. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I mean, cre- there are different w- things that creationism can mean. If creationism just means uh, things in the universe are created by a, an intelligent a designer, agent. Okay, well, then, of course, you know, mm-hmm. pretty much all theists are creationists. Mm-hmm. But, you know, t- typically creationism refers to something more like young earth creationism and then I think it's unfair to associate that with intelligent design. And in the in the parlance of the politically charged atmosphere, I mean, there's attempt, rhetorically speaking, to link the two in order to do damage right. Right. Uh, and to kind of and, blunt the effect. Right, and that's one of the things that really frustrates me is that it's just so, it's, it's not a good argument against intelligent design to try to link it that way. And that's why I think my project is worth doing because I'm trying to um, get beyond the stupid arguments that the atheists give against intelligent design. And to say, look, if you're going to give arguments, you need to give arguments against the strongest forms of intelligent design, and you need to give, you know, thought, well-thought-out arguments that actually address the strongest forms of intelligent design. Intelligent design proponents haven't always done a good job of putting forth the strongest versions of their arguments, but that doesn't mean that critics should focus on the weak versions of the arguments. That's just unfair, and that's, that's, that's just a waste of time. Um, there's no point in focusing on a weak version of an intelligent design argument when there's a strong version just around the corner. Okay, and that, of course, is something, the, the weak and the strong versions, that we can go into maybe a little bit later. Let me steer us away or uh, toward the uh, event that took place out in Texas. There was, a, on consecutive uh, nights, a, a pair of debates, from what I gather, that took place between you, Dr. Brad Monton, and um, a, an academic colleague on the other side of this question. Tell us uh, about the debate and, and how it went from your point of view. Right. This was an interesting debate they had. Um, we had about 800 people, I think, the first night, and there were four debaters. It was um, David Berlinski, who was representing the pro-theist, um, pro-intelligent design side. 
Which is kind of funny because he's not you know, as pro-theism as someone like Zemsky or Behe, but um, you know, he, was, he was obviously a great debater and he was good to have there. Uh, and then they had me representing the atheistic, um, you know, sympathetic to intelligent design side, or at least willing to defend some intelligent design arguments against some of the uh, criticisms. Okay. And then they had um, Dennis Alexander, who's a theistic evolutionist. And then they had Lawrence Krauss, who's a physicist and atheist and an opponent of intelligent design. And the debate was fascinating. I'm not sure that we actually you know, got very far in changing anyone's mind, but a lot of issues were brought out on the table. Um, it's interesting how you know most of the time um, Berlinski and I ended up being on the same side, even though you might have thought that Krauss and I would be more similar because we were both atheists. Hmm. Um, but the... The, the, it's interesting that, you know, some, it, it still brings out that one, whether one's an atheist or a theist is um, much less important than the views that one takes on all these other issues with regard to the intelligence design debate, at least. Now, that, I mean, that debate, I, I've heard the podcast. Let me just go ahead and refer uh, any of our listeners who enjoy this uh, whole issue and especially the uh, unique uh, opportunity we have today of hearing from a renowned scholar in this area uh, a, a new entry, you might say, into the Darwin design uh, debate, but one who does not bring theistic perspectives along with him, even though he has some sympathies with the science uh, arguments, particularly in physics and cosmology. And so that podcast can be reached at uh, ID the Future. Uh, I believe it's dot com. I, I, I should have checked that. But uh, ID the future. Just put ID the future in your Google search box, uh, and that'll bring you right into the podcast. You'll need to type the word M-O-N-T-O-N, uh, Dr. Brad Monton, in the little search box, and it will bring you right to those five podcasts with Casey Luskin. You will enjoy them along with this program. Now, and when you talk about fine-tuning, Give us an example or two or three uh, of your favorite um, observations that physicists have made this quirky fine-tuning aspect of the universe. I mean, what, are, what do you think are the stronger particulars that have been uncovered? Mm. Um, I mean, one that I find interesting is the ratio between the proton mass and the electron mass. Mm-hmm. If that ratio uh, were... So the proton weighs a lot more than the electron. Mm-hmm. Um, but if that ratio were slightly different than it actually is, it looks like atoms larger than hydrogen atoms couldn't exist in the universe. Hmm. And if you had a universe with no, that didn't consist of any atoms larger than hydrogen atoms, it seems hard to see how you could have life in that sort of universe. Right. Beings would be constricted or constrained to being just gas clouds of hydrogen, and we couldn't right. sh- shake hands or, or <laughs> think or hug or do much of anything right. with, if we were just hydrogen clouds. And it is worth thinking about whether consciousness could be associated with a hydrogen cloud evolving a certain way. It seems doubtful, but then again, you know, maybe we're just not imaginative enough. So it's, it's, not, it's not completely obvious that life couldn't exist in such a universe, but it does seem like that's at least a plausible view that life couldn't exist in such a universe. Now, and I... you wonder why is the proton mass, electron mass ratio, you know, just what it needs to be in order for life to exist. I've got, I've got to tell my, my story, uh, Dr. Monton, that uh, when I show uh, this aspect of the fine-tuning argument, which points to a designer, I uh, typically uh, play an interview between Fred Heron, um, the uh, science journalist, and um, DeMarc Davis, a Ph.D. astronomer, astrophysicist at Berkeley, and they're interviewing about the, um, the rate of expansion. And, 
And then Mark Davis says, you know, the 60 decimal places is the fine tuning of the rate of expansion. And then he, he makes the comment, this level of fine tuning is crazy. And I typically stop the videotape and I say, did you hear that? And my class says, huh, is this going to be on the final? And I, say, <laughs> I say, yes, it will be on the final. And I play it again so they can hear him just kind of basically say it's crazy. Yeah. Uh, but now, if you have, let's say, 60, 80, 100 factors, what are the two or three major ways of explaining that? Well, um, so one way is just to say, that's just the way it is. We got lucky. Mm-hmm. Or some, sometimes people try to say, well, of course, the value of the constant has to be in the narrow life-brain range. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here. Mm-hmm. Um, but that explanation, I don't think, is completely successful. Um, you know, if you're standing in front of a firing squad and everyone, they all fire and you survive, you can't say, well, of course, um, they, of course I survived. Of course they all missed because otherwise I wouldn't be here. I mean, no, I mean, that sort of event cries out for an explanation. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so just saying, oh, you know, that's just the way it is, and I'm, I don't find that completely satisfactory. That may ultimately be the right answer, but it's, you know, I'd rather there be a better answer. Then the two other answers that seem uh, most prominently to be on the table are the theistic answer, that God created the universe, God picked the values of the constants to be just what they would need to be in order for life to exist, okay. because God wanted a universe of life. And then the other answer would be the multiple universes answer. Mm-hmm. That, um, there are many universes, and different universes have different values of the fundamental constants, and perhaps even different laws as well. Most universes would not be life-permitting, mm-hmm. but a few, you know, a proportional few would be, and of course we would have to find ourselves in one of the life-permitting ones. And, ha- and how do you respond to the multiverse? I, I would love to hear your take on, 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 on the strengths and weaknesses of that. Right. Well, it's... It, to, to give a full response would start to be a really long answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm actually working on another book, which is just about the fine-tuning argument. Hmm. And I've already written um, 30,000 words on that argument alone. Wow. a lot to say about the multiverse um, argument. But so a, a brief thing that one could say uh, would be um, that the physicists often say, oh, the fine-tuning evidence doesn't provide evidence for the existence of God. Instead, it provides evidence for the existence of the multiverse. But in fact, that sort of reasoning, um, I think, doesn't work from the standpoint of uh, confirmation theory in science. If the um, theistic hypothesis explains why, we're, why we find the, the universe the way we do, and if the multiverse hypothesis also explains why we find the universe the way we do, then the evidence that the universe is this way provides evidence for both the theistic hypothesis hypothesis and the multiverse hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's no way, at least within scientific confirmation theory, to say, oh, it provides support for one and not for the other. Um, now, some people obviously uh, would appeal to some criterion like methodological naturalism and say, well, science can't consider supernatural hypotheses. But that's, I think, a completely unfair move. Okay. In other words, you cannot pre-assume, you cannot build into your structure of thought ahead of time this uh, condition that you rule out theistic uh, or, let's say, transcendent uh, explanatory factors a priori. Is that right. fair to say? Yep. Mm-hmm. And once, and once, um, and if you if you try to cite the fine-tuning evidence as evidence for the multiverse, then you also are constrained to say it's evidence for theism as well. Yeah. Now well, you might have independent reasons to think that there are multiple universes. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that um, the, re- the w- way that people talk about multiple universes nowadays within physics is to talk about branching universes. Mm-hmm. 
And I don't think branching universes really solve the accounts of the fine-tuning problem because you still have to worry about potential fine-tuning for the, the initial trunk for the initial universe that led to all the branches. Why don't you hold that thought? We'll be sure. right back, and I'm going to ask a few more questions about the multiverse. You're listening to an interview with Brad Monton, professor at University of Colorado, and this is Darwin or Design. I'll be right back. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570-910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're having an incredibly exciting conversation with Dr. Brad Monton. He is a professor of philosophy, particularly uh, the philosophy of physics. Dr. Brad Monton is in the philosophy department at the University of Colorado at Boulder. And we've been talking about his new book coming out this summer. It is, uh, I believe, titled Searching for God in Science, An Atheist Defends Intelligent Design. Searching and, for God is one of the titles I thought of, but ultimately I went with Seeking God in Science. Okay, seeking, seeking, seeking God. I thank you for that correction. Appreciate mm-hmm. that. Uh, I have in my hand, uh, Dr. Montan, an earlier book. Uh, we were talking about the biology side of this argument, and it's by Michael Denton. Um, evolution, a theory in crisis. And in my book, which I think you have copies of both of my books now, uh, I talk about the importance of Denton's book in really giving birth to the design, uh, intelligent design concept. I uh, didn't take that name originally. That kind of um, came out about the mid 90s. And I have um, the um, uh, books also uh, that are shaking up, or at least have done a little work in shaking up the uh, academic world. Two books by Steve Fuller, uh, one called Science Versus Religion, uh, subtitled Intelligent Design and the Problem of Evolution, and Descent Over Descent. It's a clever title. Descent Over Descent, subtitled Intelligent Design's Challenge to Darwinism. Uh, Steve Fuller, also author of that. Now, I, I'm, I'm holding these three books, as it were, in my hands, because to me, they are artifacts or examples of the disconnect um, between the popular arguments, which says intelligent design is just covert fundamentalism, and the facts, which is, um, you know, a lot of scholars who do not even embrace a belief in God, uh, either explicitly or implicitly, are raising these questions. So uh, let me just ask you, are you familiar with the work of uh, either Denton or Fuller, and have you had a chance to interact with them? Um, I'm familiar with their work. I haven't interacted with them, though. Okay. But uh, Steve Fuller, I know, is somewhat provocative and controversial because he uh, is a sociologist of science, and I think that his view is that uh, science shouldn't be so much controlled by the elite up at, let's say, uh, a higher level of government uh, or necessarily a government and and industry working together, but the production and distribution of knowledge should be more democratized. And I know that's somewhat controversial. Right. Uh, are you familiar with the, the work by um, Dr. Francis Collins, former pr- director of the Human Genome Project, called The Language of God? Uh, yeah. Okay. And, of course, he argues that, um, that uh, you know, God created the universe and the fine-tuning of the universe points toward God. And then he turns around and tries to really kind of skewer or bash the biology side of intelligent design. And so you have an evangelical, and explicitly, you know, by, you know, his testimony, you might say, is in the opening of this book, an evangelical 
who's um, attacking intelligent design. And you have two guys here, Denton and Fuller, who are, you know, kind of taking issue with the consensus and saying there may be something to this design uh, concept. Uh, do, do you see in design theory a rationale for the scientific project per se? I mean, does, does belief in a designer help to actually bolster science? Um, it could. It, it, I think ultimately, you know, one wants to see where the evidence points. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that the evidence points towards the designer, I think that hypothesis needs to be taken seriously and needs mm-hmm. to be considered. I find it strange that the theistic evolutionists like uh, Francis Collins and Ken Miller and Dennis Alexander, they're willing, they're so willing to cite physics-based evidence for the existence of God. When they, they believe in God, and then if you ask them why, you know, it looks like from their text that they're, they're happy to appeal to, for example, the fine-tuning argument. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when it comes to the evolution side, they definitely don't want to say that God is involved there. But if you think that there is a God, if you think that God is involved in you know, uh, creating and sustaining the universe, it doesn't seem to be that huge of a step to me to think that one could find evidence for God's involvement in the course of evolutionary history, for example. Yeah. Um, so... And the theistic evolutionists aren't deists. That's what, or at least the prominent ones aren't deists. That's what's so interesting about it. If you're yeah. a deist, then it sort of makes sense. You have this uh, picture of the universe where God um, starts it up in motion and then steps back. Mm-hmm. But they don't have that view. They think that God sustains the universe in existence. And they and have they, a more you know, traditional Christian fundamentalist type view of, of God. Um, so I haven't, I haven't completely figured out what exact perspective they're coming from. Well, I mean, I, one of the things that I find fascinating is that the, um, the argument, the rhetoric of Francis Collins, and um, I just had a chance to participate in a three-person phone call with him two weeks ago. This is on a Saturday afternoon, and uh, uh, just an amazing doctor, matter of fact, it was Dr. Gills, the founder of the St. Luke's Cataract Laser Institute, invited me to participate in a call with Dr. Collins where we interacted on a number of issues, and I, and I was struck when he said... Um, you know, biology uh, is more beautiful if God programs everything ahead of time rather than has to engage in these little fix-ups, you know, kind of stepping in and fixing and fixing. And I just, uh, I said, well, Dr. Collins, I mean, to me, uh, to use that terminology, you know, fix-ups is pejorative. It's plainly pejorative. You know, you could compare the universe to an, a violin, and then the, the DNA, as you call it, the fix-ups, really is the Mozart music or the Beethoven music, which then is introduced and played on the violin of, of the universe. So I, 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 um, I can resonate with what you're saying. Uh, have you, are you familiar with the new work of Michael Behe, his Edge of Evolution book? Yes. Okay, what is your uh, opinion of that book? Um. I haven't read the whole thing. The part that I've uh, focused on mostly is where he talks about the uh, multiple universes um, issue. And there I think he actually goes wrong. I think he, t- he tries to dismiss appeals to multiple universes as a way of accounting for um, uh, improbable origin of life in, in this universe. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think his argument completely works. What, the issue that he's talking about is for an irreducibly complex system, his claim is that it's very unlikely to arise via naturalistic means. Mm-hmm. And you could say, um, sure, it is very unlikely. He is right about that. It's very unlikely to arise via naturalistic means. But you don't need um, theism. Instead, if you have enough probabilistic resources, then you would expect it to arise somewhere. For example, if you have a spatially infinite universe with an infinite number of planets, then you would expect irreducibly complex systems to arise somewhere naturalistically. Or if you had an infinite number of universes, or at least many universes, then you have the probabilistic resources it would take for mm-hmm. irreducibly complex systems to arise naturally. Mm-hmm. 
So I think it's, you know, it's an interesting uh, debate right. that he's engaging in there. And he's doing a good job in elevating the debate because people haven't sufficiently talked about that move before. Mm-hmm. He talks about it at the end of his book. Wow. We're talking to Bradley Monton, Dr. Brad Monton, a professor in the philosophy department, teaching in the philosophy of physics, especially out at the University of Colorado at Boulder, just northwest, I believe, of Denver, as I recall. And um, we are uh, delving into this area of intelligent design from a new angle since Dr. Monton is, uh, is uh, as it were, waiting for the appearance of his book, Seeking God in Science. Did I get it right that time? Yeah. Okay. Uh, I was uh, uh, had it wrong, and he, uh, Dr. Monton helped me with that a moment ago. We are also, um, I'm going to ask a few of my favorite questions about physics the physicists today are telling us that the universe is made up of dark matter and even, I think since 1999, dark energy. Um, as a physics expert, at least the philosophy of physics, how reliable is the uh, teaching about the very nature of the universe that seems so puzzling and odd? I mean, I, not, I'm not asking you to necessarily critique their theories, but I mean, how how much how should a, a layperson and um, somebody trying to gr- grab a hold of this area how should we think about these new pronouncements right given the current state of play of physics i think some skepticism is in order mm-hmm. the current state of play in physics is that you have two most fundamental worked out theories you have quantum theory and you have general relativity quantum theory you know, describes for example atoms general relativity for describes for example the large scale structure of space time the problem is that these two theories are um, inconsistent you can't just put them together um, in a clean way. So people are working on trying to come up with a new theory that will replace both general relativity and quantum theory. Um, string theory is one of the leading contenders, but people don't yet even have a good grip on what string theory actually says about the world. So there's still lots of work to be done. And th- given that there's lots of work to be done, there, I think there are going to be more scientific revolutions. There are definitely going to be more revolutions in our understanding of the fundamental structure of the universe. And given that, um, I'm not, you know, I, perhaps there, there prob- maybe there probably is dark matter and dark energy, but there may be some sort of scientific revolution in the future that will lead us to say, okay, you know, that was a wrong postulation to make. That was a postulation we made only because we weren't looking at things from the perspective of this new scientific theory that unifies hmm. general relativity and quantum theory. How hard is it to define science? I mean, there's this big area of demarcation. Would you mind sharing with our listeners what demarcation is and why it's it's a little tricky to say, oh, this is science and that's not science? Right. Sure. Some people try to say, you know, a theory is scientific if and only if, and then they fill in the blank for what it takes for a theory to be scientific. And one of the criteria that's often used in the context of the intelligence design debate is methodological naturalism. You can't appeal to, you can't have a scientific methodology where you appeal to the supernatural. Um, I think it's unfair to constrain science in that way. And, but the, the more broad point is that it's hard to say what science is. It's hard to answer that demarcation question. Philosophers have tried, and no one has come up with a good answer. Um, of course, it's hard to do demarcation in general. I often have my students try to um, do that for a chair, to say some object is a chair, if and only if, and then try to fill in the blank. And it, it turns out to be remarkably hard to get a good answer. <laughs> That's amazing. Well... We've been enjoying an incredible chat with Dr. Bradley Monton, and uh, we would love to, if it's okay with you, bring you back about the time that your book is released and kind of do a uh, kind of a second chapter of this interview. Would that uh, be possible? 
That would be great. Okay. Well, again, thank you so much for coming and joining us all the way from Boulder, Colorado, one of my favorite spots. That whole uh, central Colorado, north Colorado area is very near and dear to my heart. I don't know if you knew that I was stationed in uh, Denver in the Air Force, Dr. Montan. Oh, that's neat. Yeah, and I just have tons of friends out there. Well, you're listening to Darwin or Design. We'll be right back in our final segment for an incredible wrap-up of this amazing interview uh, as Dr. Montan says goodbye. Okay, thanks very much. Thank you very much. Welcome back to Darwin or Design on Tampa Bay's Christian Talk, AM 570 and 910 WTBN. Once again, here's the host of Darwin or Design, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome back to Darwin or Design, where we're going to be um, kind of meditating and thinking back on some of the uh, really striking uh, answers that were shared to us, with us, by Dr. Brad Monton. Uh, we were during our uh, break there, uh, Bill Carl and I, my technical producer, and I were discussing uh, how refreshing it is to get just a new perspective, isn't it? I mean, Dr. Montan is not your usual stereotyped uh, professor talking about intelligent design. I mean, what 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 struck you about the the whole interview that we've just heard? Well, as an atheist to hear, or as rather as Dr. Montan being an atheist, having uh, an opportunity to hear him. Uh, bring some defense to the intelligent design community is uh, very, very interesting because one would think, and prior to my experience with you, Dr. Woodward, mm. uh, my thoughts were, well, intelligent design is just a, a euphemism for creationism. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of neat to hear somebody who doesn't buy into creationism or really a, a personal God defend intelligent design and of course he's doing that because he's seen some of the strongest arguments and as a very i mean open-minded i think would be an understatement uh i think he's implying to me in what he said about his belief in god that he's truly an atheist in a sense but also an agnostic in a sense uh so i think it was striking that he chose the the term atheist maybe he wants to put the most razzmatazz uh, in terms of the forcefulness of his own belief system. But I thought that uh, with the academic credentials he has, you know, a um, philosopher in good standing at University of Colorado Boulder, a graduate of, of the number one philosophy department in the world today, Princeton University, which also, of course, he had to rub shoulders, I'm sure, with the physicists there. About three or four of them have won Nobel Prizes uh, in the last couple decades there on the Princeton faculty in physics. So we're not dealing with somebody who's not aware of the issues I loved what he said about fine-tuning, that if you have, you know, this kind of answer or escape route of multiple universes, but then if you have the branching, like if one universe is popping out of another one and that and that gives birth to another baby universe, and so you have this branching tree effect, you get down to the original universe, the root, and where do you go from there? I mean, you can't have a branching system of universes which are birthing other universes without having ultimately some starting point. And that's, I think, people who run in and take refuge, you know, from the evidence of design in the universe and they take refuge in the multiverse. Number one, I always like to ask them, do you have any evidence that those other universes exist? And if they're honest, you know, if they're honest to the science, they have to say, well, no, but... The evidence is that this one is fine-tuned. Thereby, you know, therefore, there must be other evidence, uh, other universes out there. And so I think Dr. Brad Montan uh, has done a huge service to this debate and broadening it 
and uh, maybe lowering down the temperature, the heat of the rhetoric so that we can begin to talk to one another. I'll never forget when I asked a professor of physics on the Princeton campus recently, what do you think about this intelligent design debate? Where is it heading? And he said something like this. He says, well, wherever it's heading, I'm not sure, but it certainly can't get much more ferocious and emotional than it is now. I said, really? He says, yes. I was talking to a fellow Christian. This is a Christian at church who was involved with the university. And this particular fit professor is very sympathetic to intelligent design, has published you know, pro-ID articles. But he said this, uh, this other fellow believer at church, when I brought it up, he just turned red-faced. You know, he flushed. He got angry. He started talking rapidly. It was almost the veins were bulging, you know, in his neck, that kind of thing. And so my friend said, you know, I, I felt like saying, okay, calm down, sit down, you know, take a, take a deep breath. Here's a glass of water, you know. And we have to get through. We almost have to work our way through this intense period where things become so polarized. Things become so... I guess emotionalized, and 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 the design theorists are stigmatized, as Brad Montan put it, with arguments that are not uh, very good arguments. I mean, they're they're hit with arguments that are ad hominem arguments. I mean, I could say, Bill, you know, you're wearing a gray sweater today, and I don't like gray sweaters, so therefore you're a bad person. Your argument is false. My argument doesn't follow because the premises are false. Right. The premise that that, uh, people who wear gray sweaters are bad people, you know. So, I mean, I may not personally. Actually, I think it's rather handsome. I I think you look good on this chilly day. (laughs) Yeah. I won't go beyond that. But I, I think that, you know, one of the things that this program is all about is teaching us and trying to review in our own minds how to think and how to how to how to evaluate statements, how to evaluate claims in the real world so that we can help one another to think better. You know. Okay, I have to ask this. Would you say that parties on both sides of the aisle, so to speak, have have uh, could be accused of a certain amount of vitriol toward the other that is that has hampered the that is that has hampered the debate? Undoubtedly, there's been vitriol on both sides. Uh, I am I mean, I I wrote my my second book Darwin Strikes Back is really filled with a couple chapters full of me analyzing the vitriol against intelligent design. Now, I think that from our side, let's say from the intelligent design scholars that are actually writing books and articles and doing research, I don't think there's so much vitriol as there is broad sweeping generalizations that are unfair. Okay, I mean, I'm going to stick my neck out here. I may get it cut off, but... Some of the writings, as much as I love Philip Johnson, the former day-to-day head of the ID movement, now retired professor of law at Berkeley, Philip Johnson has done a fantastic job of building and launching the ID movement, but he sometimes generalized a little bit too much. Darwinists believe this. Darwinists say that. And then, you know, fill in the blank, he'd say some generalization. And I also often had to think, well, wait a minute, Phil. That's a little bit unfair. Not all Darwinists think this way or act, not necessarily, you know, or argue that way. You know, I personally know of some that don't. And so I think that sweeping generalizations are part of the problem. And I, I'm sure I'm guilty of that, you know, on numerous occasions. And I, I came down too hard at the end of a lecture in, in Australia. This is down in Tasmania. And I was finishing up a lecture, there was a Q&A, and somebody made a comment, and I wasn't very kind in my reply. 
um, they, they said, well, you know, there's really no design science because this isn't science. It's just theology dressed up as science. And instead of saying, let me share some information with you, I said something like, well, you haven't done your homework. And so that was an unhelpful comment. And I had people squirm in their chairs and I later on had some people correct me and, I, and they should have corrected me. I should have said, let me share some information you haven't, you know, had, you know, we weren't privy to, you haven't had an opportunity to see. Uh, one of the things that strikes me, uh, and I'm, and I'm going to really hopefully work with Dr. Brad Montan in a mutually supportive role here, is that we all need to know the best arguments in every area. We know, I need to know the best arguments against intelligent design. I need to know, I, I think I know what are the best, you know, five or six arguments from our side you know, critiquing Darwinism or critiquing naturalistic origins in general. But, you know, the design people need to understand fully and completely to the nth degree how the um, critic of design thinks and what their best arguments are. And I thought that was what what I loved about Dr. Montan. You know, he just he wants the, the argument level to be raised on both sides. And to kind of sweep away the the junky arguments, you know, retire them, put them in the trash, as, as it were. Now, Dr. Montan, in um, one of the forums in in Dallas, uh, actually, I think it was uh, down in Waco, Texas. He went went to this debate and participated in the debate this this spring. Or actually, it was excuse me, this last fall. And he went to a church, according to one of these uh, interviews I heard afterwards. He went to a church and he told the church why the people gathered in the church, why he's an atheist. So I would love to, on the next broadcast, you know, when his book comes out in June, I would like to ask him, you know, why are you an atheist? He said himself that the design arguments are some of the stronger arguments for God. You see, those are the kinds of arguments, for example, that convinced Antony Flew, the famous atheist philosopher, to change his mind about three years ago. So I'm really looking forward to engaging with uh, Dr. Montan, and perhaps we can get a couple other atheist or agnostics who are really talking about these issues uh, with an open mind. Now, earlier in the program, we talked about an event coming up very, very soon here in Tampa Bay. It's going to be at the University of South Florida on Thursday night, February 26th, from 7 p.m. to 9. And the program is called Darwin's Legacy, subtitled The Hidden Story. Now, the hidden story really is about things pertaining to Darwin himself and to Darwinism that are often kept out of public view, things that you don't hear about in public high schools or in the media or in textbooks about uh, Darwin and Darwinism. But since Darwin is celebrating his um, 200th anniversary of his birth uh, this year, along with the 150th anniversary of his famous book, The Origin of Species, we want to recognize the importance of his work without necessarily agreeing with macro, his macro evolutionary theory. And we do want to invite you to participate with us with a famous uh, talk show host, Michael Medved, will be here uh, on the stage with me. He is a nationally syndicated talk radio host, heard in our sister, on our sister station, WGUL. Uh, Two million daily listeners, Bill Carl, that's an incredible audience he has. So I can't wait to uh, see how many of those two million will will flow to our uh, (laughs) Oval Theater at the Marshall Center. Dr. Steve Fuller, who I mentioned also earlier in our broadcast, will be there live on the stage with me giving a talk. So it'll be three short talks. Uh, I'll be giving a 20-minute or so introductory talk. 
And Dr. Me- uh, Mr. Medved and Dr. Fuller will give 25-minute uh, to 30-minute talks. And then we'll have a Q&A from the audience, maybe a panel discussion. Steve Overton, the famous broadcaster on Channel 8, has agreed. Uh, he's now working, I think, with Merrill Lynch. But he's agreed to come back and join us on the stage and be the um, MC of the evening. Tickets are very affordable for students, uh, children and students of any age, $5, adults $10. And you can actually get those online by just logging on to 860wgol.com and follow the links to uh, order your tickets online. The seating is somewhat limited. I mean, there are 700 spots in that Oval Theater, and about 50 are already taken up with workers, volunteers, um, other people that have to be there. And so in order to secure your tickets and not uh, be coming there um, disappointed, we encourage you to get your tickets in advance. And, of course, you could also come early, and we encourage you to get there no later than 6.15 in order to ensure that you'll get a seat in that Oval Theater on the Marshall Center. Now, we're working out things with uh, USF for parking. We hope to actually have parking provided, as it were, en masse without having to get one of those tags, those $4, you know, one-day tags. So we hope to hear back uh, very next in the next couple days on that. And so hopefully parking will be free in either of the two major parking garages right by or the, or even the open lot, the flat open lot right by the Marshall Center. So we'll try to c- confirm uh, that and get word to you next week on this program. But again, uh, 7 to 9 p.m. Thursday, February 26th, Darwin's Legacy, The Hidden Story. What do we know after 150 years of Darwinism? And I think you'll enjoy that. Don't miss that opportunity uh, to hear Dr. Uh, Steve Fuller, Michael Medved, and and me on the stage, each giving uh, coordinated presentations. And you can ask a question. You can come up to the mic at the end of the evening and ask your question you've been wanting to ask maybe uh, these last several months. Well, we want to thank again uh, the St. Luke's Cataract and Laser Institute for making this program possible each week. And I want to thank personally the uh, staff of uh, Trinity College, which houses the C.S. Lewis Society. Uh, you've, uh, uh, Trinity College has been a huge, huge plus in my life. I've been teaching there for 20 years. We want to thank all the support we've gotten from Trinity College and, uh, and the C.S. Lewis Society, of course, the other main sponsor, uh, which uh, has been uh, supporting this program since its inception about two and a half years ago. Uh, we want to mention one more opportunity coming up soon, and that is on March 31st. If you'll mark your calendars now, there will be an unveiling of the fossil collection at Trinity College. And more on that later. I'm Tom Woodward. Thanks for joining us this week on Darwin or Design. 